All right, on the screen, there's going to be a little sign here. It's called We All Wonder, ExploredGod.com. Coming to Chicago in early 2019, January and February 2019, is a spiritual awareness campaign. It's a gospel awareness campaign. It's going to be all over the city of Chicago. Right now, there are 450 churches participating in this campaign. I just got the word last Friday. I was with the Explore God team out in Wheaton. We are one of those churches. Before I ever came here, your elders voted, our elders voted to say we're going to be part of this Explore God campaign. So what does that involve? What's that look like? Well, first of all, you're going to see over 2,000 billboards all over the city of Chicago that look just like this or have other things on them about come explore God with us. We're going to be inviting the city of Chicago to come explore God with us as the church of Jesus, right? Coming together around the very reason why we exist, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? You can check out this website at home, exploregod.com, and check out some of the videos they have there. We'll be preaching seven sermons here on the seven big questions about God. Where do these come from? Well, when we ask non-Christians what questions they have for God, these are the seven big ones that come up over and over again. Okay? So we're going to preach those sermons right here in this worship center. We're hoping some people from the community will join us for those, but that's not really the heart and soul of this. The heart and soul of this is actually... Christians like you leading spiritual conversation groups about these seven big questions where you live, work, and play. In your homes, in a coffee shop, uh, at work, wherever it is. So we're looking for at least 25 of you folks to sign up and say, I'll lead one of those groups. I'll get on the journey. Now, I can tell you, Demay and I are both going to lead one, so we already have two. Our goal as a church is to have 25 of these groups going. We've already told the elders there's 12 of them. Six of them have to lead one of these groups, okay? So we're going to twist their arms. Um, But I'm going to go in there in October and twist their arms some more. Uh, We will train you how to do this, okay? You don't have to be vivacious like me. You can be calm, ordinary, normal. It's okay, okay? You can be introverted. All you have to do is learn how to ask good questions, be curious about the people in your group, and just get in this conversation with your neighbors, Okay? So we're going to do this. Now, one of the reasons we're preaching this sermon series right now in the nine arts of spiritual conversation is to get ready for this initiative, okay? So that we're people that live on mission and are making relationships with non-Christians so that they might want to come to a group like this and talk with us about what they believe about God. Make sense? Okay, you with me? All right, now we're going to start the official sermon. Are you up for that? All right, here we go. That was just, that was a little advertisement for the sermon, okay? Here we go. So I have a friend that I met uh, in my previous job. His name is Jack. I can't tell you his last name or I'll have to take you out. Um, Jack is actually the creator, the inventor of Moneyball. Yeah. You know the movie Moneyball? Billy Bean signs a contract with his company to do this whole new kind of cyber metrics around baseball. Well, my friend Jack actually invented that. He's a Christian who lives in Wheaton and rides the metro train back and forth to work every day. Okay. Jack and his partner were bond traders, and they were uh, doing this rotisserie baseball league. Rotisserie baseball is like a a fantasy baseball league where they were, you know, kind of using their numbering system to win the baseball league every year. For five years in a row, they won the rotisserie baseball league because they understood the numbers of baseball. So one day, they're on the train, they say to each other, do you think this would work in real baseball? And they said, I think it might. So they wrote this program, and they started to go visit with general managers across the country And Billy Bean saw it and said, you can't tell anybody your name. You can't tell anybody the name of your company. I will sign you exclusively to work with the Oakland A's. 
Okay? So if you notice, the Oakland A's right now are on the rise. Okay? My friend Jack is behind all that. Okay? Now, here's how Moneyball works. Okay? And the Cubs are doing this, by the way. The Cubs are doing this. If you're a Cubs fan, you understand, right? You don't focus on the outcomes. You focus on the process. You can't control the outcomes. You can only control the little actions you take in the process to get the desired outcomes that you want. Make sense? So, if you're a hitter and you smack a line drive in the left field, but the left fielder makes a diving catch, in typical number baseball, you get penalized. Your average goes down and you're, you get penalized. You made an out. But in cybermetrics, you get rewarded because you did the right thing. You took the right action at the plate. You took the right approach, hit the line drive, and that gets rewarded. If you're a pitcher, pitch the perfect pitch, but the guy hits it out of the park, you get rewarded in cybermetrics because you've done the right thing, the little behavior that leads to the right outcome. You can't control the outcome. You can only control your behavior that leads to the right outcomes. If you 90% of the time hit the line drive, you're going to be on base all the time. If you 90% of the time throw the right pitch, it's going to go well for you. It's a theory, right? Now, you say, why are you telling us all this, Klein? This is nuts. Well, here's why. I believe being on the mission of God is the same way. Hear me out. We can't control the outcome. I hear, I hear Christians in churches all the time, pastors go, we want to change the world. Get out there and change the world. Okay, good idea. Unfortunately, I can't change the world. I don't know about you. I've tried. And, and you know, we say to people, I, I want more baptisms in my church. I want more people to be baptized, more people to find Jesus in this church. I, I agree. I do. But the thing is, I can't make people be followers of Jesus. I can't force them. I can't convert them. I can't convince them. I can't change their lives. That's something only God can do, right? Those outcomes are beyond my control. So what can I control? I can control my everyday behaviors, right? Little things I can do to get on the mission of God. That's what these nine arts are all about, okay? So let's get the nine arts back up there. These little behaviors that we can learn to be on the mission of God, right? We can all do this. We can notice. We can pray. We can listen. We can ask good questions. These are things we can control. And if we all begin to behave this way over the course of a long period of time, we will start to see the outcomes of the kingdom that we're after in this church. Make sense? We start to treat our neighbors a certain way and build these kind of relationships. We're going to be led into spiritual conversations that are going to change people's lives forever, for eternity. It's going to be amazing. Okay? Uh, Hugh Halter says it this way. Like harsh words spoken without tact or a fire burning outside a fireplace, missionality by itself can hurt the cause of Christ more than it helps. This is why missional has an inseparable twin. The word is incarnational. It means to take on flesh. If missional means to go, incarnation is about how you go and what people see as you go. It encompasses your posture, your tone, your motives, and your heart. Incarnation is critical because it will eventually determine whether or not people want to know you or your God. So these arts, frankly, these are a way to posture ourselves in a loving way toward people who believe differently than we do, right? Just to treat them with love like Jesus did. We get to move out in the world and we get to actually practice these little behaviors that will let people in the world know that we actually care about them. We actually love them. It's really exciting. Now, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the first art, noticing. We're going to dig right into noticing. Okay, now, guys, have you had this experience at your house? My wife will go to the hairdresser. She will come home from the hairdresser, and she will walk around the house. It's kind of like a little test. 
And she walks around the house, and she kind of flips her hair a little bit, and she kind of walks around, and she walks in front of me a few times, and of course, do I do what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to notice that she's had her hair cut, her hair done, but I don't do it. I miss it. She says to me like several hours later, did you, did you know I got my hair cut, my hair done? I'm like, oh yeah, honey, I, I saw that. It was amazing. It's like, it's like, you don't really care about me. If you really care about me, you would notice when I get something changed in my hair. She's probably right. When you notice someone, when you pay attention to them, when you really see them, it says to them that you really care about them. Seeing people, paying attention to them, is close to the heart of Jesus, right? People matter to God. So God sees people. And because he sees them, because he pays attention, because his face turns in their direction, they know that God really cares about them. Okay? So when we see people, we're doing the work of God. We're letting people know that God cares about them because we, we see them. Look at this story, Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm not sure this is a great idea, uh, frankly. I'm not sure this is a good thing to agree to. But, you know, they had this promise from God. They're going to have this amazing family with all these nations, and they had no kids. So Sarai cooks up this scheme. Abraham agrees, and, of course, it leads to problems. Check this out. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. What a surprise. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So Hagar feels mistreated. She leaves her family. She leaves her place. She runs off into the wilderness, and there she sits by herself, pregnant, alone, an Egyptian woman in danger, not doing well. This is when an angel of God shows up, begins to talk with her. They have this conversation. He, he listens to her story, and then he pronounces to her, look, you go back to your mistress, Sarah, and you submit to her. And this is going to be your child, Ishmael. is going to be amazing. And she pronounces this, he, the angel pronounces this prophecy over Ishmael. Now, the key verse in this whole story is the next verse because what happens is, is we get Hagar's reflection on this experience. Check it out. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me. Hagar feels recognized by God. God sees her in her brokenness. He sees her for everything she is, but he sees her. He pays attention to her. And that lets her know that she's loved, that she's cared about, she's cared for. This is the kind of thing we're supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus in the world. Letting people know that God sees them. Do you know how many people in the world think that no one sees them? Now, I'm not asking you to add a bunch of stuff to your life. I'm just asking you to do this in your everyday life. So I go to Roosevelt and President Street, Dunkin' Donuts, every morning. I get an iced coffee in the summer, hot coffee in the winter. I walk in this same store every morning, which means I see the same people behind the counter every morning. So in my Dunkin' Donuts... The lady at the, at the counter who takes the order, her name is Susan. Susan, when I first walked in Dunkin' Donuts, she looked down like this. At the cash register, can I help you, sir? 
And she just took my order. Okay, sir, I'll get that for you, sir. And then she's just gone. She looked down the whole time. She never looked up. I thought, man, what is going on? I noticed that Susan didn't feel very important. Susan felt like a coffee drone serving coffee to rich people. Susan thought she didn't have any value. So the next time I went to Dunkin' Donuts, I said, Susan, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Yes, sir, good to see you. What would you like this morning? For 30 straight days, I started talking to Susan, asking her questions about her life, paying attention to her. Guess what? When I walk in Dunkin' Donuts now, she looks up, and she smiles, and we have a conversation. Now, have I led Susan to Jesus yet? Not yet. But guess what? I am doing the work of Jesus because I am letting Susan know that she's valuable, that she's seen, that somebody notices her, that somebody cares enough about her to know her name, ask about her life, tune into her. How many encounters do you have every week with people that don't feel like anyone sees them? They're like Hagar. We as the church get to be the ones who let them know that Jesus cares about them, that Jesus is with them, that God sees them. Now, Jesus follows his father's example in this. Jesus, when he comes to put God on display in the flesh, he incarnates the truth about God and he incarnates what God is like and he starts to see people, pay attention to them. Wherever Jesus goes, he seems to be aware of the people around him, what they're up to, what's going on in their lives, right? He's paying attention, he's tuned in. So check this one out. Luke chapter seven. Oh, I'm sorry. This is one that Karen helped us with. We showed this to you two weeks ago. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, right? I love this. Jesus has compassion on people when he sees them. Karen already helped us with that really well. So let me go to the next one. Luke 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, this is about a 10-mile walk from where Jesus was previously in Capernaum. He goes to this town called Nain, and he runs into this funeral procession. It's coming out of the town gate. Let me ask you a question. See if you're like me. When you're on your way somewhere, and a funeral procession happens across in front of your car at the stoplight, and there's like 50 cars with their headlights on, how are you feeling at that point? Are you like, woo, man, I feel compassion for these people. No, you're like, what the heck? How long is this funeral? You know, you're kind of hoping this guy didn't know too many people, right? So he gets through quickly. I'm just, I'm just being honest here, right? This is, I don't know if you're like me or not, but this is what I do. I'm sitting here going, this is annoying. The funeral is in my way. Up to, I got to get somewhere. I got to go places. I gotta, Jesus is on his way, and he's out to the town gate, and here comes his funeral procession. But Jesus isn't like us. Jesus sees the woman, and he even gets far enough with her to understand that this is her only son, and she's already lost her husband. And so his heart goes out to her, right? Check out this news first. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Jesus' eyes are connected to Jesus' heart. When Jesus sees people in their brokenness, his heart moves. How about you? When you see people in their brokenness, does your heart move? Because beating inside of us, all of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, is the heart of Jesus. So we as his church have the responsibility, the mission, the call to make sure that people know that Jesus really cares about them, right? 
that he's really with them on the journey. Check this out from Hugh Halter again. Eyes are a key part of incarnation. When they are open, the ears stay open. And when the ears listen, the heart softens. And soon the hands start moving to touch, help, and heal. But when the eyes are closed, the ears close, and the mouth opens, words fly out. And quite frankly, the world doesn't want to hear any more of our religious rhetoric. Noticing people is a relational act of kindness. It lets people know that you're really with them. So I did Timber Lee Camp a few weeks ago. The first night, you know, I'm, the, I'm this old speaker. I'm really old now, seriously. So I'm walking back from the first night of talks. It was like 400 high school kids. I poured out all the energy I can. I just want to go to my cabin and go to bed. That's where I'm going. I'm just literally on a beeline to bed. And as I'm walking down the road, right across the road from me, there's a high school girl walking by herself on the first night of high school camp. There's 400 and some high school kids in the camp. She's by herself. I noticed this. Now, I have a choice. I notice it. I'm like, I just want to go to bed. I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to deal with her. I just want to go to bed. But I'm like, okay, Jesus, I can feel you want me to turn. I mean, she's not going to talk to me. I'm the speaker. So I turn aside and say, hey, how you doing? How's Timberly? How, you know, how's it going? Oh, yeah, good to see you. Good to meet you. I'm Jeff. I'm Sarah. Good to meet you, Sarah. Hey, I, you know, have you been to Timberly before? She said, no, I've never been here before. It's my first time. I said, really? Well, how did you, like, how did you decide to come? Are you, you're obviously here by yourself. How did you decide to come? She said, well, it's kind of a weird story. I said, okay, well, try me. She said, well, I stole my parents' credit card, and I signed myself up for camp. I'm like, oh, Sarah. She said, well, my parents are raging alcoholics, and I just needed a break. They won't even miss me. I'll be gone the whole week. They won't have a clue. I just found this camp online. It looked like a cool place to come. I just needed a break, so I came here to camp. I'm like, well, Sarah, it's really great to meet you. I hope that God will do something in your life this week. So two days later, I'm in the horse corral showing off my horse skills. Yeah, exactly. This is how I get myself hurt. Um, you know, ladders, horses. So, so I'm, on the, I'm on the horse corral doing my horse thing, and uh, guess who's there? Sarah. And she's over to the side. So I went over and talked to her. I said, Sarah, how's it going? She said, oh, camp's amazing. I love camp. It's great. I said, well, how's all this Jesus talk going for you? She goes, oh, man, it's like you're talking right to me. I said, well, Sarah, you know, uh, you can get to know this Jesus. She said, I, lo- I love to get to know this Jesus. And right there in the horse corral, Sarah and I prayed that she would receive Jesus as her Savior. Now, I could have missed it. If I would have gone to bed, I could have missed the whole thing. But fortunately, Jesus woke me up, right? And I tuned in and talked to Sarah. When you're on your way places, don't think of them as just like places you're going to waste time. Think of those intersections with people as ordained moments where God might be at work and he might want you to enter in. You just have to notice, pay attention, tune in, right? Now, one of my favorite stories along these lines is this one from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. 
So we ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I love this. Three details about Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. He's wealthy. And he's short. (laughs) You can't see over the crowd. So he runs down the road with his brilliant scheme to climb up a tree because he really wants to see this Jesus guy, this famous rabbi who's going through towns. Everyone's following this guy. Now, I started digging this. I thought, this is interesting. Why these details? Why do we know that he's a chief tax collector who's wealthy and short? Well, I happened to be a short guy back in the day. When I was a high school freshman, I was 4 foot 10, about 83 pounds. A real stud. All right? So, so uh, what, what happened to me when I was that, that size, you know, uh, the girls would come up to me at school and they'd be, you know, they looked down at me and they'd say, if you were only a little taller, you'd be really cute to go out with, you know. Thank you. The basketball coach every year would cut me from the team and say, we're going to go with the taller guy. The the football players thought it was funny to carry me around the school, this little guy, and drop him a long way from his class and watch me run back frantically to my class. You know, this is the kind of stuff that happened to me. Now, fortunately, I grew. Look at me. Huh? Yeah, I grew. Zacchaeus, he didn't grow. He just stayed short. So imagine this poor little guy, Jericho High. You know, the girls going, hey, Zacchaeus, you're a cute little guy. If only you were a little taller. That went on for the rest of his life. This, the basketball coach cutting him from the basketball team every year. You know, the football players came around. I mean, this, this guy needs respect. So what's he do? Oh, becomes a chief tax collector. It's a no-brainer because tax collectors get respect. They got the, the power of the Roman government behind them, right? So I can just see Zacchaeus collecting taxes. Goes to those, some of those girls' houses, knocking on the door. It'll be 100 denarii for the Roman government, 100 denarii for me. Goes to the basketball coach's house. It'll be 100 denarii for the Roman government, 500 denarii for me. You know, the football players, I don't know how it goes. Pretty soon, he's wealthy. He's got a beautiful house with a three-camel three garage, a Camelac in the driveway. And this guy is getting it done. But guess what? Nobody wants to hang out with him. Who wants to hang out with a cheating, short, little, bumpy tax collector? Nobody. Who's all alone? Jesus is brilliant. Jesus doesn't only see him in the tree. He actually sees his spiritual address. He recognizes that Zacchaeus needs a friend. So what's he do? When when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. This little invitation to come to his house changes Zacchaeus' life. Look at the next verse. It's up there. Salvation comes to his house. He gives half his money away. He gives it to the poor. The whole thing happens. Uh, There we go. (laughs) It's amazing, right? He doesn't follow a formula. He didn't pray the four four spiritual laws. He didn't confess the Roman road. He didn't follow any formulas. Jesus knew his spiritual address. And since Jesus is an amazing noticer, he knew what God was up to in this encounter. And he entered into it in just the perfect way. So Zacchaeus' life could be changed. You know what we need to be? We need to be spiritual archaeologists in this day and age. People who understand how to go out there and mine for what's going on in people's lives. How are they spiritually spinning? What do we notice? We need to ask God to enlighten us to the things that are happening in their hearts and lives so that we can enter in and join Jesus on his mission, which is this next slide. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead. So um, here's, here's what I got for you this week. 
because we're going to be about the process, not the outcomes. In your worship folder, this little diagram. See this? You know this? Everyone should get this out. Okay, find this. Look at it. You are in the center of the diagram. Okay, I took this from my friend Dave Runyon. He wrote a great book called The Art of Neighboring. And he developed this little diagram so that him and his wife could actually get to know their neighbor's names. Here's what I want you to do with it. See that house in the center? That might be your home. Maybe God's put you on your block for such a time as this. I don't know. That might be your exercise machine at the gym where you go each week and the people that surround you are there every week with you. And for such a time as this, that might be your spot. It might be your office cubicle or your office at work and you're surrounded by people and of course you're going to start to notice and pay attention to them because they're around you and God's put them there. It might be your kids' soccer game sidelines where you sit with the same parents over and over again looking at soccer games they, that just might be God's opportunity for you to engage people and notice what's going on in their lives, okay? Since we want to be about the process, we're going to practice. So your homework this week is to take this car with you and to put some names in these boxes, people that God puts in front of your face that you notice, okay? I have a bunch of these people written down. So I want you to write them down, and I'm going to check up on you. I want you to bring this back next week. I'm going to come check up on you, make sure you got it done. <laughs> You don't want to get an F in, in church school. You know what I'm saying? All right, so, so, so seriously, this is great because here's what we want to do. Remember, we want to be practicing these basic behaviors to make us a missional people. The only way we do that is to do something. Not just hear a sermon, actually do something. So we're going to go practice, okay? So please take this with you. See if you can put some names in this card of the people that God's put right around your life, okay? I'll close with this story. So um, in the morning, I've tried to have this practice. I, I can't say I do it every morning of the week, but I try to do this. Before my feet hit the floor, I try to say to God, God, can you use me in some way today to build your kingdom? I just want God to use me, use my life in some way. So I try to pray that little prayer. So one morning, a couple years ago, I was really wanting to be used in a big way. So I said this, Lord, can you use me today to do something really big in your kingdom? And then I got up. An hour into my day, got a phone call from a single mom in my church whose husband had had an affair and had left her behind with a one, two, and four-year-old. She said, Jeff, my toilet's broken. She said, uh, I'm trying to potty train my two-year-old. The toilet's not flushing. I got the parts here. I'm not sure I can fix it. Would you be available if I needed you to come over and maybe fix this toilet? I said, well, Laura, I'm doing something really big today for God. <laughs> So uh, uh, why don't you call me back? You know, if you can't get it fixed, call me back later on, and I'll be happy to come over. So six hours later, of course, the phone rings, and she says, I couldn't get it fixed, can you come over? So I go to her house. I come in, walking in with my toolbox. All three children are going bananas. They're, they're like screaming their heads off, like, Wah! just screaming like crazy, like demon-possessed children. You know what I'm saying? So I think to myself, i got to get in this house and out of this house as fast as I can. So I run up to the bathroom. I fix the toilet quickly, put everything in place, got it flushing. I come out of the bathroom, and there at the bottom of the stairs is the one-year-old. She's like this. There's snots coming out of everywhere. So I say to her, I, I won't say her name now, but I say to her, it's okay. You're having a bad day, huh? You're going to be okay. And she stops crying, and she starts like speaking in tongues. La, 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 la. 
And she's trying to tell me about her day, right? So I come down the stairs gently. I put my toolbox down. And there's a chunky book on the stairs. I sit down. I invite her to sit next to me. I start reading the chunky book to her. At which point the two and four-year-old hear my voice, stop screaming in the other room, come over, sit next to me. And we all sit there reading the chunky book together. That's when mom came around the corner, tears rolling down her cheeks. Said, my kids haven't been this quiet in like a, two weeks. Could you pray over us, some of the rooms? It's been really rough. Now again, I almost missed it. I was doing something big for God that day, right? But God just wanted me to fix a toilet and pay attention to some kids who needed to know that God loved them, that God really cared about them, that God really saw them. Okay? That's the gift you can give someone this week. The people in your life, who around you needs to know that God is looking in their direction, that God really sees them. Okay? Put them on your card and begin to engage them in some kind of relationship. That's how we get on the mission of God. That counts. It counts. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we pray for eyes to see like you saw. Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to the people you have around us, you've placed right around us, who need desperately to know that you care. Jesus, give us the courage, the wherewithal, the Spirit's power to see them, really see them. In your name we pray, amen.